We have an announcement. We have received a word from God, a message from the Lord. God has desired to speak to us. He's taken the initiative to do just that. He has sent His word to us. It has arrived, and we are absolutely certain that this word that God has sent to us is from Him. He sent it a long time ago, and we've had it for a while, but we have gotten this morning around to reading this part of it. Thankfully, He has preserved it ever since He sent it and delivered it, and you will find it in your Bible entitled First Peter. So if you would, please turn in your Bible to First Peter. This is the word from God that He has spoken and delivered to us. And it is relevant and it is important for us this morning. See, if we were a church in what is today called Turkey, in that region in the first century A.D., we would have received this letter from God by way of a messenger. The messenger would have arrived, he would have looked through his packet of scrolls if he had more than one, or he would have just presented the one that he had to the pastors of the church, and they would unroll it and find out that it was from God through Peter to them and then they would read it to the church. So we have received this scroll as a letter from God. It has been brought to the church, and it would be read at that time to the church. Whoever was at church that day, they would have the Word of God written to them. Uh, written to them. And if we had somebody with the ability, a, a scribe or somebody trained like a scribe, we would hurry up and get them started copying that, and then we would give the letter, the scroll, back to the messenger and and he would give it to the next church down the road because this was delivered to churches in the area. But we would have the Word of God delivered to us. And if that was the case, if you knew that God had written you a letter, He had written a specific word for you down on a scroll and given it to you, what would you do? You'd want to read it, wouldn't you? You would read it and you would reread it and you would just keep rereading it like like a, a young boy getting a love letter from a girl that he likes, or vice versa, right? It doesn't usually work the other way that much, but you would just, you, oh, this is from God. I have got to read this. How blessed are we today that we have all of the inspired, God-breathed letters to churches that we get to read today, that God gave them, He delivered them, He preserved them. And all of them that were delivered to those certain churches, we have those. And in many of the blessed New Testament Scriptures, there are specific details for the churches that are included. But of course, we know that overall, the universal truth claims are absolute. They're, um, they are relevant and applicable everywhere, all the time, so in every letter. And that includes First Peter, but in a special way for us this morning. This letter was written to churches in an area and, and they were experiencing a cultural rejection of Christianity. And it was a looming legal persecution that was coming upon them soon. They were about to be persecuted heavily from government forces, but at this point in time, they're apparently experiencing some suppression of the message. People are cringing at the message of the gospel, and they're rising up against it at a cultural level. Other than their fellowship, though, their, their communion in the gospel and that rising persecution, there are very few other similarities that the people in the churches of this area are going to be experiencing. There are not a lot of similarities there. So in 1 Peter, we're not going to have a lot of church-specific issues that arise. 
You think of like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, okay, you wrote to me, you asked some specific questions, let's deal with those kind of things. Uh, you think of the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and this church has this issue, you need to deal with it this way, and, and all that. Here in 1 Peter, we don't have that. This is a very large area that's covered. Actually, uh, you see, it, we're going to read here in a, in a few minutes, uh, the area that's listed here, this is, it covers over 300,000 square miles of land. That's about the size of Arizona, California, and a little bit of Nevada. So you can see how kind of a range of, of uh, cultures and, and people that, that this can cover. Uh, rather than addressing an individual church like John does in Revelation or Paul does in, in, in many of his letters, Peter addresses all Christians in a very large area. What was that area like? It was very different among itself, just in the area. Pontus was a mountainous coastal area on the Black Sea. Galatia was named after the Gauls from Thrace who settled there. They spoke their own language um, into the 4th and 5th century. Uh, Cappadocia was a high elevation plateau with unclear borders. It's kind of hard to describe. They were just all over the place. Asia originally referred to the area of the Lydian kingdom that had its own culture, its own language, and, and it became less and less precise until it covered an entire continent. <laughs> Asia referred to that. Um, and Bithynia was made up of just rude and uncivilized people, as we know from history. So th th this is a very diverse area. And then you add to that that Peter and Paul, neither one of them apparently had ever been to the area, and Peter uh, addresses people in his letter as apparently Jewish people and apparently Gentile people. And so he confuses commentaries and scholars <laughs> all over the place, but th that's the idea. This is a very diverse area. And he's writing to the Christians in that area. There wasn't a lot in common between them except Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit more, a little bit later. But believers here this morning have the same thing in, in common, so, something that transcends language and culture and civilization, any of the background that we've come from, the same thing unites us as united the recipients of this letter, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the other similarity that we have with these people is that there's a cultural war going on in our country, in our culture, and they are, they are just the beginnings of possible government laws and rules that are being considered, that are being passed, that are happening, and, and they will be contrary to what we believe from God's Word. And we're going to see that more as we study this Word from God, 1 Peter. It's going to be incredibly relevant from God to us in our day, in our time. Now, what we would normally do in a message like this, this is an introductory message to this letter. What we would normally do is we'd talk a lot about it. Uh, we would outline it. We, we'd hold up certain verses and feature them and, and talk about how it's going to relate to the big picture and what we're looking forward to. But, but as we got together, the pastors of this church looked at it and thought, you know, <laughs> As a way to introduce this, what could be better than just to read it? <laughs> it's a short enough book. We don't have to outline it and talk about it and hold it up and say, this is what we're going to talk about. When we thought, let's just read the Word of God, just unadulterated, uh, without comment. We can read through it. Uh, we can read this all in one message, and, and we'll have a few minutes at the end. We can discuss a little bit more about verses 1 and 2, the introductory verses, but right now, if you have your Bible, if it's helpful for you, you can follow along. Or if it's helpful, you can be like the first century audience would have been and just listen 
and hear as it's read because that's how it was meant. When, first, when Peter wrote 1 Peter, he wrote it, it was delivered to them, and they would have just read it in church the first time they received it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. You can follow along um, or you can just listen. And we're going to change it up a little bit. There will be um, our, our other pastors are going to come up and, and read uh, the chapters with us so it's not just me reading this because this is the Word of God. And it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and putting on gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives with an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for being good than if that should be God's will than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. If in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when, they do not, when we do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as much as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. God, we, we thank you that you have preserved this word after giving it to your people long ago. And Lord, through centuries you have kept it. And we have it now. We thank you, God, that we have it in our language, that we can read it and hear it and understand it. And God, I thank you that we've been able to spend this time reading it. I pray, Lord, that as we just discuss for a few minutes uh, just the beginning part of it, Lord, that you would work in this to give us the hope that you would have in Christ. God, that is who you are. You, you are the God of all hope. You are the God of all grace here in this letter. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that was a blessing to you as it was to me. That was, it is a blessing to hear God's Word read, to have His Word uh, given to us, delivered to us. Uh, there's so much about loving and strengthening brothers and sisters through persecution, through tribulation here. The reason that, that Peter wrote this, and we read there in chapter 5 that he used Sylvanus uh, as a it's, it's called an amanuensis. It's a little bit more than a secretary, but that's what he means there at the end there. But he says in, that, in chapter 5, verse 12, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Uh, that was what he said. There was the reason that he wrote this, that this letter. And so he's going to declare and he's going to exhort the gospel more than one time in this letter. And he's going to declare and exhort us to stand firm in it because of what's happening to the people at this time and what's going to be happening to us in our time. The key verse, if you like the key verse concept, the key verse to remember is chapter 4, verse 19, where he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, and there is no suffering outside of God's will, so let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good the all-powerful creator, who's the good creator, who's, who's given us the, the sun and the, and the rain and, and clouds and, and the snow, all of those wonderful things, that good, all-powerful creator, you and, we entrust our souls to him as we're suffering while well, we stay faithful to him and his purposes. And that is doing good, as he says there in that verse, doing good, growing in holiness. So for this morning, let's just look at the first two verses where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, the reason that we're going to spend just a few minutes on these verses is because there's a little bit of extra information here Uh, that's important for us to understand. If we were studying Galatians, the opening letter of that uh, uh, from Paul says that it's from Paul, and it has a little bit of information about Paul, but then it says, uh, to the churches of Galatia. (laughs) And that's it. That's what he's got in there. So, we could skip over that part of the introduction to Galatians. To Colossians, Paul writes to the saints and faithful brothers of Christ in Colossae. So, we might spend a minute on that. You know, it's just a sentence. There's a little bit more. But here in 1 Peter, he's got something that's not skippable, (laughs) some really important information of what he's telling these people. 
He addresses the elect exiles in those five areas of modern Turkey, and he expands then on what that means in verse 2 with information that we're going to see is encouraging. And it is wonderfully edifying, and it is faith-building truth because it's going to strengthen our understanding of where we stand before God, like how, how we stand before God, who we are before Him, especially in the middle of persecution and tribulation. What is it that holds us? What is it that keeps us from falling away? Because there are going to be really hard times that were happening and coming for these people here in First Peter, maybe for us as well. Do we just have to try really hard not to fall away? Do we just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? Lift ourselves up and just try to believe more. Just, just keep believing. Just keep believing. Is, that what, is that all we have to keep us firm in this faith? There are some really terrible things that happen to people even today because of the name of Jesus. So how does anyone not abandon all of this when people think badly of us or talk about us badly? When legal trouble and persecution comes, when physical harm comes to our family, our home, our business, ourselves. Peter is writing to these people in the middle of some cultural persecution and the rising legal persecution. What does he tell them about themselves to help them begin to stand firm? What is it that he tells them to hold on to? He says that you are the elect exiles. And we're going to talk about what that means, but then he qualifies it. He explains in three ways, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But this is important, and we should not pass over this, because he explains something here that, that means we have nothing to fear, no matter what happens, including death. No matter what anyone does to us or against us, here is true lasting hope and encouragement because of what God has done for us in saving us. So let's look at it together. He says, I'm Peter, and Peter is the apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's the name that Jesus gave him. Do you remember in the Gospels? His name was Cephas, and then he changes his name. Jesus changes his name. He says, now you're going to be Peter. You're going to be a, a rock or a, a stone. And in Matthew 16, Jesus explains that Peter as the stone is different from the foundation rock of the confession of Jesus Christ as the son of the living God that he's going to build his church on. But Peter is the name that people know him as. And so he, he says, look, this is Peter, and his role in the early church was apostle. Jesus personally sent him out, commissioned him to, to be his witness and to care for the other sheep, John 21 said, the rest of the church. That's Peter's role. And so as an apostle writing this, Peter is writing Scripture. He's writing God's very words to the church, to God's people. And that's why we started it the way that we did this morning, saying that we have received a word from God. We really have. What we hold here is God's word. So that's who it's from. Who is it to? Well, Peter says it's to the elect exiles of the dispersion. What does that mean? The word exile describes a person who belongs to one nation but is temporarily living in another nation, right? Where they are is their temporary residence. The whole time their eye is turned back home. You know, I really want to go back home. I want to be home. But right now, I'm in this place. And so, I'll be in this place for a while until I'm allowed to go back home. And it was a motivation for them not to be a difficult person, not to be a terrible citizen where they were, but to be a good citizen, to be a, a, a beneficial part of where they were until they were able to go back home. Jeremiah 29 is clear teaching for this, for God's people. In Jeremiah 29, uh, God tells the people of Israel, you're going to go to Babylon, and you're not going to want to be there. 
but you're going to be exiled. You're going to be exiles living in a foreign land. But instead of being terrible, instead of fighting every step of the way, instead of getting dragged there by your hair, go there and be good citizens. Just plant gardens, build houses. They were commanded to have families and multiply and flourish. And they were even told to seek the well-being of the city that they lived in. God even tells them to pray for Babylon, for its well-being, while they're there. They were to be in the land, but they were not to be of the land. That's the word exile. That's the idea here that Peter's talking about. He says that they are exiles in the dispersion. And dispersion means scattered abroad. And to this point, it had only ever been used of Jewish people. Because the Jewish people had been scattered or dispersed out of the promised land, either through God's judgment or through persecution. But here, Peter applies it to a mixed group of people, not just Jewish people, but also Gentile people. We saw that this area covers over 300,000 square miles. They're scattered all over the area, just like Christians are today. And so, the exiles of the dispersion part makes sense to a point, except that most of these people were living in their home country. They weren't living in a different country, so why is Peter calling them exiles? It's because of that first word that he calls them, the elect. Now, as soon as I said that word, some of you shuffled in your seat and you kind of sat up like, oh boy, (laughs) here we go. When we consider the first qualification of that, which we'll look at in a minute, it makes you even more uncomfortable, some people even more uncomfortable, according to God's foreknowledge, the Father's foreknowledge. But we're going to be seeing, here's what we're going to study and find out here, that rather than being uncomfortable, what we're going to see is that this is an amazing, comforting knowledge about what God has done for us. It's a comforting, encouraging knowledge when nothing else is going to be comforting. When the world begins to squeeze Christians with culture and then with legal sanctions and laws and everything starts to get really hard, our comfort is going to be in the certainty that is found here in this truth about who we are. In everything that we cover here, in no way are we going to deny that a person, to to be saved, a person must respond in faith and repentance. We know that from Scriptures, right? Right? That's what Jesus preached when he came, believe the gospel, right? Repent and believe the gospel. So in no way are we going to venture into the wrong idea that God's going to save you whether you like it or not, (laughs) whether you know it or not, right? We're not going to say that, well, God has elected these people, and whether they repent and believe or not, they're saved. Or this person repented and believed, but God didn't save them because they're not elect, right? We're not going to say anything like that because the Bible does not teach that, does it? Amen. So we're not going to say anything like that in the wrong territory. In no way are we going to charge God with being wrong and say, well, you didn't save that person because you didn't elect him. (laughs) When someone responds and believes, God saves them. But those are some fundamental misunderstandings of this biblical teaching of election and God's election here. What we need to understand is that when God says, I've elected people, it is a sovereign prerogative that he does not reveal to any human being. We don't need to understand, um, we don't need to try to understand, you know, from God's perspective, what are you doing in your mind, what's happening in there? You know, if if He does not choose anyone, no one will be saved. That's what we're going to see in His Word. That's what Paul says in Romans 3.11, nobody seeks God. No one does. On our own, we're all going to hell. (laughs) That's what Paul tells us. That's what the Scriptures tell us. Old Testament and New Testament, we're all heading straight to hell. So for anybody to be saved, God must choose them. 
But he didn't choose to send the rest to hell. That's where we were all going to be going. See, again, we don't charge God with wrong. We're all wrong, but he saves some. That's Romans 9.16, where Paul says it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so our salvation comes from God in his election, but his election is something that he keeps to himself, right? He doesn't reveal to anybody. He doesn't tell you, don't go out there and evangelize because it doesn't matter what you do. I haven't chosen them, right? In no place, that has no place in Christian thought or teaching. We don't get to know who is or who is not elect. That's why we call everyone to repentance. That's why we spread the gospel to everyone. That's why Jesus says in John 6, 47, whoever believes has eternal life. It's a real and open call that we extend because it's up to God how it works out. That's what makes John 6, 37 so important for us. It's, it's a both and. We're going to look at that in just a second here. It is God's election. It's 100% God's election. That's what he tells us in his word. You're saved because I've chosen you. It is 100% necessary that a person has to respond and believe on their own in faith and repent. It is 100%. How does that work out? That's not for us to figure out, is it? <laughs> but he says, this is what Jesus says in John 6, 47, all that the Father gives me will come to me, Right? That's what God the Father has done in his election. He said, all of these people that I've given to you will come to you. And the very next, he doesn't even take a breath. It's not even the next sentence. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, whoever comes to Jesus, he's going to take. He's going to receive. If they believe, if they repent, he takes them in. And they were given by God the Father to the Son. So we don't know who that's going to be, and so we don't emphasize that all the time. We don't talk about that all the time, but this is what the Scriptures teach, that the, God has elected, He has chosen a people for Himself, and that's not just a New Testament thing. That's not a new thing that God thought up in the New Testament. He started with Israel in the Old Testament with that. You have Deuteronomy 7 in your notes, and, and uh, we won't go through that, but, but take the time to read those verses. It's, those are amazing. It's an amazing passage where God says, I chose you. Not because you're powerful, not because you're so super smart, not because there's anything good about you. <laughs> you are weak and really stubborn, God says. But I chose you and saved you, so you're saved. The result of this, and, and that's what he does in the New Testament, that's what he does with us. He says, look, you, you were, there's nothing good about us. <laughs> God didn't say, you know, I'm going to look down through the corridors of time and I'm going to find out who those people are that are going to choose me. And therefore, I'm going to choose them because that's earning something from God, right? So he didn't say, I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to do. He says, you're, you're a sinner. You are on the road to hell. That's where you deserve to go. But in, in God's grace and mercy, he says, I've chosen you out of that. And because you've repented, because you've believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Son of Man who died for you and rose again, you're saved. See, again, it's that both. It takes both. The result of this, here's what's supposed to happen with this. We've looked at this before where you take a blessed uh, uh, teaching in scriptures and, and Satan comes along and twists it and divides people over it. And that's what's happened throughout so much of church history. Satan takes the blessed truth and love of God and twists it and divides people with it. Here's what's supposed to happen when we understand this. Turn to Psalm 105. This is a good illustration of what's supposed to happen when we understand what God has done in saving us when he's elected as he says he does. In Psalm 105, verses 1 through 6, we won't read the whole psalm, but the psalm is really similar to these first six verses. You see, you see God's work here. 
And remember, as we praise God, we praise Him for who He is and for what He's done. And this psalm does that also. Uh, psalm 105, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, His servant, children of Jacob, His chosen ones. What this is supposed to do, as we understand how God has saved us, how He has chosen to save us when we didn't deserve it, is it's supposed to just well up in in springing out of praise and rejoice to God. It's supposed to lead to us just, I can't help it, I just got to praise God for what He has done that I couldn't do on my own, right? That's, that's what's supposed to happen, and it's illustrated here in Psalm 105, and it's going to be true uh, and, and present itself over and over in the Scriptures that we, we just well up in praise to God because of what He's done in saving us. The whole psalm is like that. He protected them. He guided them. He provided for them. He did everything for them despite their small strength. You can read that psalm. It's a a blessing to read that psalm. It says, you know, God chose them. He loved them. He saved them. Verse 43 says the same thing. You chosen ones. God's election earns him praise. It doesn't earn him, God, I can't, I can't, I can't buy that. I can't believe that, right? I'm not going to believe any of that or hear any of that stuff, right? Because God says, this is what I did. This is how you're saved. Because you believed and repented in him. Because of Jesus Christ. The result of election is praise to God, not praise to man. Because the most helpless, the, the least deserving, the, the most horrible sinners who deserve nothing but wrath from God We're given grace and mercy from Him in Jesus Christ. And it's independent of anything we do. I can't earn anything from God. Even deciding to believe in Him on my own, I can't do it. He has to work within me. If I can do anything that deserves His salvation, then I get some of the praise, right? I get get some of the glory for, for my salvation, but I get nothing. God gets all the glory. God gets all of the praise. It's precisely because I could never choose Him and I contribute nothing to my salvation that God deserves all praise, honor, and glory. And that's what Paul's point is in Ephesians 1 when he says over and over that this election that we have from the foundation of the world is in Jesus Christ to the praise of His glory. That's what it's meant to do. Here's what Jesus says that brings us back around to the ideas of exiles and dispersion. John 15, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, how did they become not of the world? But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's what Jesus says. He says, I chose you out of the world. Christians have come out of the world, and and you are still in the world, but he's chosen you to be different now and to be out of the world even though you're in the world. At that moment of salvation, you've responded in faith and repentance. You've become exiles in your own country. You now no longer have this place, this earth, this country as your citizenship, your true citizenship. So now, as Hebrews 13, 14 says, for here, that means on this planet, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, the one in heaven. We're looking forward to going home to being with the Lord rather than staying here and trying to make a permanent home out of this place that hates us because of our Lord. 
one of the great dangers of the Western culture and of many churches is how comfortable it is to be here in this world. It's one of the great dangers that we face in this society, in this culture, because things are pretty comfortable here, right? We've got a lot of padded chairs. We've got air-conditioned homes and cars. We've got a lot of entertainment, any kind of entertainment at the, at the touch of a button, at the click of a mouse. But we should never feel at home here. We are elect exiles. We've been chosen out of this world. Even though we live here, this is not our home. As good as we are to be here, as good as the citizens as we're supposed to be, Peter is going to help us understand our role with the government and, and with other people, but this is no longer our home. So that's what it means, the elect exiles of the dispersion. Let's look now at the three uh, qualifiers of what this means. We'll look at these very briefly, but realize the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God working to save us according to his election. Verse 2, number 1 in our notes, the three qualifiers for what that means. He says, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. The foreknowledge of the Father. Uh, how are we elect? According to what? According to God's foreknowledge. Now, what does foreknowledge mean? And this is where it gets really encouraging for us. <laughs> this, this means, it, it means a previous determination and purpose. Before you did or did not do anything, before we even existed, before anybody knew anything about us, God knew us. He knew His own. He, he knew them and loved them. What it, what it means is a close knowledge. It contains the idea of having regard for or putting your attention on that person. It's not just knowing before. That's true of everybody, right? There's nobody that God doesn't know or hasn't known. He's omniscient. He knows everything. This is a special knowledge as opposed to general knowing of everybody. It comes down to a relational knowledge of determination and choice. And here's how clear the word is. Look over at, stay here in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse, uh, start at verse 17. He says, you, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed with the, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. We are not ransomed with perishable things, but with Christ. And what does verse 20 say about him? That he was foreknown the same way that we are foreknown here in verse 2. Certainly, you wouldn't say that God just kind of knew about Jesus. <laughs> he, he looked down through the, t the time and saw that Jesus was, would come for us. He said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll know him beforehand also. <laughs> this is the same foreknowing, the same relational knowledge of intimate and relationship, intimacy and relationship. To save who? To save those he relationally knew and chose beforehand. This is where it gets comforting because in Romans 8, he says that who God predestined, that's another name for election, he who also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers, among those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. Isn't that amazing and wonderful? I mean, this started with God's work and God's determination and it ends unbreakably, unmistakably with our glorification with Him in heaven. It's a chain that's unbroken and it can't be broken by you or me or anybody else. That's why Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. 
And no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand because you didn't do it. God did. When God does the work, it will be completed. And it's as good as done. That's why he says, you're glorified. (laughs) We are, Ephesians 2, seated with him in the heavenly places already. That's the hope that we have on this firm foundation. And that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19. He says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. Or who is His. Who are His. (laughs) Doesn't matter. (laughs) Whatever it is, no matter what happens, God's got us. Because He knows us. This is how we are elect. That's what it means for the purpose of bringing God praise. Because it brings us a true hope. It brings us a true knowledge. So the first qualifier is that our election is according to the foreknowledge of God. The second one, number two in our notes, is in the sanctification of the Spirit. In verse two, the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctifying is, is setting apart. It's consecrating. It's holiness, right? Setting apart for the unique use of, of who? Of God, of the Holy Spirit. We're set apart for God's purpose, for His use and His glory. The Holy Spirit has so much ministry in our life. In the life of every believer, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin. He pushes us to seek for God. He tells us when something is wrong. He enables us and empowers us to serve in the body. He regenerates us in salvation. He pushes us onward, always toward salvation, toward holiness. And all of that is emphatically the divine act of God. It is this act that sets us apart from the world. The sanctifying, the setting apart of us is what makes us the elect exiles of the dispersion that removes us from the community of the world and exiles, alienates us, makes us different from everybody else, and yet also brings us into the community that we're now a part of, the fellowship of His body. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we were sinners, just a whole host, a whole list of of thieves and sexually immoral and drunkards and revilers, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. That was by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of our God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says he always gives thanks for them because God chose them as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How did God save them? How did He choose them? Through the work of the Holy Spirit to set them apart, and that's how He chooses us as well. But again, notice, brothers and sisters, that he uses the necessary response of faith as the vehicle to bring us to that salvation. He says it is by the Spirit's sanctification and belief in the truth. We can't just sit back, and again, we've said it over and over again, it's not a given to be forgiven, right? God says you must believe, you must repent. You've got to make that decision as God leads So election is qualified by the Father's foreknowledge and the Spirit's sanctification. Number three, verse two, for cleansing and justification in Jesus. Justification in Jesus. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. What does that mean, obedience to Jesus Christ? That means the submission to obeying Him on the basis of paying attention to that person. That's what the idea there is. It's, It's salvation, really, in different words. It's our justification. It's our being declared righteous because of our belief, our obedience to Jesus. It comes by obeying Him, not by works, not by, you know, uh, well, I can work my way to heaven, not trying really hard, but realizing that I cannot obey, so I obey His command in Mark 1.15 to repent and believe the gospel. That's the obedience that He's talking about here. That's how we obey Jesus, and that's how we become justified. 
when we obey the gospel. You've got other verses in your notes about that, about those who obey the Word of God, those who obey the gospel. There are many others that aren't included there, but Acts 5, Romans 16. And so we can see what Peter means here by obedience to Jesus. It follows after salvation as we love and adore and worship Him because of who He is and because of what He's done for us. And you have 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6 in your notes so that we have assurance of that salvation as He works obedience out in our daily life after we have been saved. It's obeying all the rest of His commandments because we've been saved, not not before not so that we can become saved. We encounter 1 Corinthians six eleven again, where not only are we sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus accomplished in our salvation when God chose us. He's the one who worked out perfect obedience, and He gives it to us when we obey by stop trying to obey and believe and repent. And then we grow out of love for Him, we grow in our obedience. The sprinkling there is a picture of being cleansed, being set apart. You have Exodus 24 there in your notes. Read through those verses, verses 3 through 8 of Exodus 24. It helps us to understand the picture where the people pledged, we will obey the Lord. Everything He said to do, we will do it. And Moses takes the, the, uh, the sacrifice and he sprinkles some of the blood on the altar and then he turns and he sprinkles the people with the blood. He says, okay, if you're going to obey the Lord, you are set apart, you're sanctified, you're sprinkled, and you are cleansed because of your belief not because of your works. So what this does for us, what what Peter lays out for us here is real, true, lasting hope in God's work in us, not of any of our work in, in God's electing of us because of His foreknowledge, because of sanctifying, because of cleansing us and justifying us. God did it all, and He did it to those who deserved it the least, so there's nothing that can change His mind now. You can't mess up enough, so God says, nah, never mind, you're not worth it. When did did He demonstrate His love for us? And that when we were yet sinners, He died for us. There's nothing that will change His mind now. Again, it's that unbreakable chain from Romans 8. It's going to be seen through because God sees it through. Because He started it, He will finish it. That means that we as the church are not just some human organization or club. We're not just a a self-improvement plan. We're not a get-rich-quick scheme. We're not a, you know, whatever else is here that we could come up with. We're not here to be better people, right? We're here not just to work together in teamwork and have good community or whatever. We're here because God brought us here, because He has a plan for us, and we're going to remain here until He says, you're not going to be there anymore. (laughs) Sometimes we struggle to believe in this because we think, you know, the if God chooses me, then you know, he, he elects me. That makes, that makes me special. It does, but it wasn't because you were special. <laughs> he chose you because He wanted to, not because of me or anything I could do or say. What is the result of all of this work of God? Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Not physically. He's going to call for a lot of persecution, a lot of trouble that's going to come. It's arising already. So, so it's not physical grace and peace but it's grace and peace that comes from God. It, it, it's grace from God that overflows, and it's called for here, especially in the midst of trials, and peace with God, because peace with God is impossible apart from His grace. So it's His grace that comes first, and then the peace that comes, and that surpasses all understanding. 
But notice again that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the salvation. It sets up the transcendent origin, the nature, the purpose of Christians and the church, what we're here for, how we got here. It, it's, it's God knowing us and gifting us with sanctifying grace and finishing that work in us. So our application, how do we close our time this morning? What do we take from this? Well, we need to remind ourselves, remind yourself and one another that nothing will ever remove the triune God's saving work in us. He started it in us. He, 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 he says He elected us, and then He says, now believe and repent. When you've done that, it was His work in you. He saved you, and nothing can ever stop that. Nothing will ever change that if you have done that. If you have not done that, it's not true of you. And you need to see one of us. We can talk with you about this. We can lead you through the Scriptures, and we can pray with you to find out how God says you can be made right with Him, how you can become a son or daughter of God in Christ. If, if that's true of you, then nothing will ever remove God's work. Finally, live and share that gospel. That is good news. That is good news that we can rest on and hope in and know for sure that it will come about because God said so. He set out doing it. He's doing it now, and He will finish it one day. So live and share that gospel. Father, we praise You for Your Word to us. God, we thank You that You have told us that You've done all the work. We can't do anything, Father, to save ourselves. We need to come to the end of ourselves, Father, to see that before You we are sinful, and we need your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy, but that only comes because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you for that. We thank you for that gospel, that good news. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength of faith to believe, to continue to believe, Lord, to continue to live out that truth. And God, that you give us boldness and the words to say and the love to overcome any kind of fear to share that gospel with those around us. God, all of this is your work. All of this is for your glory and for your praise. We praise you, God. We thank you for your goodness and your power. We rest in that until you call us home. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name.